0: August 1942, eight months after the attack on Pearl Harbor and serial victories by the Axis powers in Europe, Asia, and North Africa, this is the first American counteroffensive. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll hear from eyewitness participants in Operation Watchtower, the six-month-long bloody battle for Guadalcanal, once described by a participant as a place no one had ever heard of. The vicious fight for this 2,060 square mile patch of jungle in the Solomon Islands, northwest of Australia, was the first stepping stone on the way to Tokyo, an ultimate victory in the Pacific. The U.S. Marines, sailors, and soldiers who fought on it, in the waters around, and the air above Guadalcanal described it as nothing short of hell. In this compelling War Stories podcast, you'll hear from those who were there, when Admirals Chester Nimitz and Ernest King locked horns with General Douglas MacArthur about strategy and how the winner of this contest got to fight for a miserable patch of South Pacific jungle and an unfinished airstrip they called Henderson Field. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand reports from two U.S. Marine heroes, fighter pilot Joe Foss, who's America's number one ace, and machine gun platoon commander Mitchell Page. Listen as they recount harrowing battles on the ground and in the air to win America's first offensive victory in World War II. Both men received the Medal of Honor for their personal valor over and on Guadalcanal. You'll also hear the little-known story about a tiny group of Solomon Islanders and civilian coast watchers that aided the Americans by spying on the Japanese and helping rescue downed aviators and Marines. U.S. Navy hero Frank Holmgren was one of just five survivors of the USS Juno, a medium cruiser sunk by the Japanese in a battle off Guadalcanal on the night of 14-15 November 1942. If you're not inspired by how Frank Holmgren and his comrades survived the shark-infested waters off the bloody beaches of Guadalcanal, you may need an empathy transplant. In six months of fierce combat, more than 1,600 Americans died Another 5,700 were wounded or sickened fighting in Guadalcanal's putrid jungle, in the skies above and the seas around it. For the Imperial Japanese Army, Navy, and Air Force, it was even worse. Their losses totaled more than 30,000. Good evening. I'm Oliver North, and welcome to War Stories. We're here at the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas. And this exhibit memorializes one of the bloodiest campaigns of World War II, Guadalcanal. Admiral Chester Nimitz targeted the tiny tropical island in Solomons for the first American offense of the war. He saw Guadalcanal as a crucial stepping stone on the road to Tokyo. But from August 1942 and through February 1943, Guadalcanal became better known as the Gettysburg of the Pacific. As you'll see, mistakes were made on both sides in what became the longest campaign of the Second World War. The bloody fighting cost the lives of some 7,000 Americans and over 30,000 Japanese. Tonight you'll hear from the heroes who fought in the air, on the ground, and the seas around this sweltering green hell. Joe was the farm boy from Sioux Falls, Iowa, who dreamed of becoming the next Charles Lindbergh. I want to go to war.
1: I said, I'll do anything to go. I want to get into fighters. John was
0: a long way from Columbus, Ohio, in his father's saloon.
1: It was
2: hell. And it was spotted with screams, hollering, uh,
0: both Japanese and, and Marine. Mitch had walked 200 miles from his Pennsylvania home to sign up with the Marines. All of a sudden you see nothing but
3: bayonets coming at you, and this most uh, horrible screaming.
0: And Frank had just graduated from New Jersey's Eatontown
4: High School. The next thing I know, I'm coming up out of that water, and we had sharks all around us.
0: That summer of 42, Joe Foss, John Sweeney, Mitchell Page, and Frank Holmgren were just four of the 105,000 boys headed to Guadalcanal. At the time, nearly a million Americans were serving their country overseas. Back home, it was a time of sacrifice and determination.
1: Now that the national rubber crisis has caused tires to be rationed, this is one, and we see the car bowling along on wooden tires.
0: part of the Solomon Island chain, Guadalcanal is about twice the size of Long Island, New York. It's been described as a hunk of pestilence and rot, which is diabolically humid all the
3: time. I think everybody on the island had malaria, and it always felt like when I closed my eyes, it was like it was a knife blade on both eyeballs. Located
0: 6,000 miles southwest of San Francisco, near Australia, Guadalcanal seemed an unlikely stepping stone for America to turn the tide against the Japanese.
5: The Japanese used this on Guadalcanal and all
0: Richard Frank is a Vietnam veteran who's written a definitive history on Guadalcanal. Why did they pick Guadalcanal as the target for this first offensive operation?
5: Admiral King determined that it was essential that the United States seize the offensive in the South Pacific. He determined that the place to go was Guadalcanal because that's where the Japanese were threatening to move down through the southern part of the Pacific and cut the lines of communication to Australia and New Zealand. But what's interesting is that Admiral Nimitz, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet, had no intention whatsoever of launching an offensive in the Pacific, mainly because he believed his forces were not adequate to that sort of a task. King had the ear, of course, of the president, FDR. What's remarkable about this is that truly, you can say that it's one man who does it, it's King.
0: Admiral Ernest King was once described by a junior officer as being quote, meaner than hell, and one who inspired respect, but not love. He grew up in tiny Lorraine, Ohio, the son of a railway mechanic. At the age of 63, he was Chief of Naval Operations and a member of the President's Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was also 57-year-old Admiral Chester Nimitz's boss. The two men, though polar opposites in style, respected each other and shared a special distrust of General Douglas MacArthur. In the aftermath of the fall of the Philippines and MacArthur's precipitous departure from Corregidor, is he still revered in Washington as a great leader?
5: In early 1942, Douglas MacArthur was probably as popular in American as there has ever been at any juncture in our history to the American public. At the same time, in Washington, they also recognized that they were dealing with one of the great egomaniacs of American history, and his judgment was extremely erratic and very very suspect to many people in Washington. The political stakes were enormous. MacArthur, Nimitz,
0: and King had no way of knowing the victory at Midway had virtually destroyed the imperial Japanese fleet. For that victory, our Navy had broken the JN-25 cryptographic code used by the Japanese. No one was supposed to know about it. But a day after the battle, the Chicago Tribune printed this story in headline. It wasn't cleared with the government censors, and FDR was furious. He blamed his longtime political adversary, Robert McCormick, the Tribune's publisher. The president ordered Attorney General Francis Biddle to try McCormick for treason, punishable by death. But the Navy didn't want a trial which would disclose our code breaking and refused to cooperate. Nonetheless, the secret was out. The Japanese
5: changed their main operational code at the end of May 1942 and again in August 1942. This effectively shut us out from actual uh, decoding of Japanese messages throughout the entire Guadalcanal campaign. And the reality was the Japanese Army had never tasted defeat. It had crushed the Americans in the Philippines
0: the Dutch in the East Indies, and the British in Burma, Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Now their target was Australia. They began a systematic seizure of the 900-mile-long Solomon Island chain, but no one knew exactly why.
5: After the Battle of Midway, American commanders were in sort of a a three-way competition as to what to do. Describe that. that friction. Admiral Nimitz, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific, believed that it was imprudent to embark on any offensive operation. General MacArthur, clearly with an idea towards seizing the initiative, proposed a a leap to Rabaul, the main Japanese base in the Solomons, and also wanted the Navy to provide him with a couple of carriers to support that.
0: In addition to the carriers, MacArthur told King he wanted to take over the 1st Marine Division. From his hotel headquarters in Melbourne, he waged a political war against the Navy.
5: Admiral King was adamant that the Navy must move onto an offensive, he was equally adamant that no carriers were going to be subjected to command of General MacArthur, and in fact he understood the politics of it, that by seizing the initiative, taking charge of an operation, the Navy would dominate the resources and hence the operations in the Pacific to come.
0: MacArthur got no carriers, but the decision by the Joint Chiefs of Staff was indeed Solomonic. They literally split the command of the Solomons along the 159th meridian. Nimitz would get Guadalcanal and its neighboring Tulagi and all islands east. MacArthur got New Guinea, New Britain, and islands west. What intelligence did we have at the time about what the Japanese had on the island of Guadalcanal?
5: Intelligence was one of the shortfalls in American planning. Uh, We did not have a good fix on how many Japanese were actually on Guadalcanal. But someone did. What the
0: Americans didn't know was that a spy network was already in place in the Solomons. In 1939, native scouts, or Coast Watchers, were coordinated by 27-year-old Martin Clemens and his boss, Australian Lieutenant Commander Eric Felt. The um, Coast Watching idea was, was Felt's. He thought up
6: this idea of, of having Coast Watch because he realized that we'd never have enough troops and uh, we were learning to use those long
0: before the japs came anywhere near. Martin Clements had lived in the Solomon Islands as a British district officer years before the war began. The islands were then a British
6: protectorate. We then were sent off to different districts to do the dog's body work, like uh, counting out the rations and visiting villages way up in the hills, learning a bit about the native language. They used to comb their hair up it's stuck
5: right up over the head.
6: They'd wear any length of calico, as they called it, cotton material wrapped around the middle.
5: Martin Clemens is a a truly remarkable individual. He maintained himself on Guadalcanal with the aid of, uh, particularly the native police that they'd organized, up in the hills reporting on what was going on, and later on organized uh, what was an extraordinarily effective intelligence network that the Marines made full use of throughout the campaign.
6: So I said, now this is what you've got to do. We've got to find out the caliber of guns. We've got to find out the number of people. We had these radio sets which would carry about 400 miles. We had two frequencies, and you could switch from one to the other. And that's very important because once the Japanese arrived, they could hear our transmissions, but they couldn't find us. because we had a code, a simple code, and the, the men would take it in turns to report any strange object on the sea or in the sky
0: or on the land. One of Clemens' 400 scouts stood out, 42-year-old retired police sergeant, Major Jacob vuza He'd had 25 years in the police,
6: so vuza came and reported to me and said, I offer my services. He was the first of us to, to meet the Americans.
0: Australian-led Coast Watchers provided crucial intelligence on Japanese movements, so the Imperial Army decided to wipe out the native scouts. But one of those they left for dead got his revenge. That's next on War Stories.
1: Bright lights of New York as they will not be seen again till after this war.
0: During the summer of 42, blackouts became routine in America, even in Times Square. 8,000 miles away, Martin Clemens and his scouts, including Jacob Fusin, were busy on the Solomon Islands gathering intelligence on the Japanese. Scouts always
6: used to have to go in pairs, because if one chap got knocked on the head, well... Who's going to report that he's gone? They had spears and and bow and arrows, axes. Axe was a dual-purpose weapon. I mean, you can either knock people off with it or you can chop trees down.
0: The Coast Watchers made note of ships they saw. Despite losses at Midway, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's Navy was still formidable. And on the ground, intelligence estimates put 8,000 jungle-hardened enemy troops on the two islands. But the reality was about 2,500 on Guadalcanal and 1,000 on Tulagi. But the enemy's intent on Guadalcanal was crystal clear.
2: Martin Clemens was sending messages about the arrival of the Japanese and apparently starting to build an airfield along the point on Guadalcanal. That threatened the sea lanes to... New Zealand and Australia, as far as America was
0: concerned. From San Diego, 24-year-old Marine Captain John Sweeney shipped out with the 1st Raider Battalion. He just didn't know where he was headed.
2: Beyond the seas is the phrase in the the orders that we received. We didn't know at that time how we were going to be used. We were what they call a mobile reserve for a a larger
0: force. Unlike Sweeney, 24-year-old Platoon Sergeant Mitch Page already knew
3: the enemy from his time in China. Many of them were Mongolians, and many of them were over six feet tall, and many of them were over 200 pounds. They love to run bayonets through you first, and then shoot you. I have to be honest with them and tell them what I know. I want to share with everything that I ever knew or heard about or saw myself in China.
0: John Sweeney and Mitch Page found themselves attached to a hastily assembled new 1st Marine Division under Major General Archer Vandegrift. A 55-year-old Virginian with a liquid drawl was given the tough job of orchestrating the landings.
2: General Vandegrift, I think, gets high marks for what he did and
0: how he did it. How much time does the 1st Marine Division have to get ready for this operation, Archer?
5: One of the things about Guadalcanal, which is so striking, is the order is issued on the 4th of July. The landing is on the 7th of August. That's five weeks to assemble forces from all over the Pacific, the West Coast, plan, coordinate. It's just absolutely astonishing. I, In fact, I can't think of any operation of comparable size the US has ever mounted that is parallel to Guadalcanal. Under Vandegrift, more than
0: 14,000 Marines geared up in Wellington, New Zealand. This was the jump off point for
5: Operation Watchtower. It called for an amphibious assault on Tulagi and Guadalcanal. They go into a frantic effort to cut down on the amount of supplies, equipment that's being taken along. Not that there's that much to begin with. They call it Operation Shoestring. They
2: had to uh, unload the ships and then reload them in the shape of what we call a combat loaded, where the ammunition and the uh, rations would be the first offloaded. That was a, a problem to start with, and where the idea of a shoestring operation became commonplace.
0: The operation required 82 U.S. Navy ships with Grumman Wildcats and Douglas Dauntlesses providing air cover while the Marines seized the beachheads. Later, the Army was to come in and relieve the Marines. Who's an overall command of the operation?
5: Vice Admiral Robert Gormley. Robert Gormley is a textbook example of the importance of health, rest, and recreation for a leader in March 1942. He has abscessed teeth. He's unable to rest. He overworks himself, becomes immersed in detail, and moves from really being pessimistic to being an absolute defeatist. He also displays egregious judgment uh, in not attending the initial conference uh, for the landing.
2: He was a weak sister. He never came to Guadalcanal.
0: While Admirals Nimitz and King continued their planning, Gormley and MacArthur met in Melbourne, Australia, and questioned the logistics of the entire mission. This enraged Admiral King. But he did give Archer Vandergrift Another week to prepare. In the waters around Guadalcanal, things go from bad to worse for the Navy. That's next on War Stories. 82 American ships loaded with 14,000 Marines from Major General Archer Vanegreth's 1st Marine Division, steamed toward Guadalcanal and Tulagi. The enemy was caught completely off guard. Why don't the Japanese oppose the landing on August the separate.
5: The Japanese garrison on Guadalcanal is primarily there to construct an airfield. It's comprised overwhelmingly of basically impressed Korean laborers. When the Marines show up, the first instinct of the commander is that this is just gonna be a raid.
0: 19 miles away in Tulagi, it was a different story. While Admiral Gormley stayed at sea, well away from the action, Brigadier General William Rupertus led John Sweeney and 3,000 Marines against 1,000 Japanese soldiers.
2: The banzai charge was a lot of yelling and, and enough to scare anybody. Malene, Malene, you die. Malene, you die. That was a, a common one.
5: There are the kind of uh, extermination fights to become the hallmark of the later battles in the central pacific throughout world war two.
2: B Company was the first to encounter opposition as they crossed an open field. We lost two officers and one man right there within a a matter of uh, 30 seconds or so.
0: For 31 hours over 800 Japanese soldiers fought to the death. The marines lost 115 and the navy lost 7 sailors. When did the Japanese make the decision to reinforce Guadalcanal?
5: The senior Japanese naval officer in the South Pacific, Vice Admiral uh, Makawa, decides immediately upon learning that the Americans have landed on Guadalcanal to stage a counterattack with his service forces, a group of cruisers and a destroyer.
0: On a moonless tropical night, Admiral Gunichi Makawa's eight-ship fleet snuck past an American picket patrolling the channel between Guadalcanal and Tulagi. Caught completely unaware, the Japanese were able to blast one Allied ship after another in the battle for Savo Island. We thought we were winning the war listening to all the firing. In fact, that was the common word. We're knocking hell out of them out there. And it was just the opposite. As dawn broke on August 9th, over a thousand Allied sailors lay dead in the depths of what came to be known as Iron Bottom Sound. One Australian and three American cruisers had been sunk Three other American warships were severely damaged and another 700 sailors had been wounded. The Japanese suffered minimal damage to its fleet and few losses. 129 dead and only 85 wounded.
5: The Battle of Savo Island is without a doubt the most humiliating defeat ever suffered by the United States Navy and war. It simply is a story of an incredible series of events of miscalculation and bad luck. Back at his
0: headquarters in Hawaii, Admiral Nimitz was shaken by the news. As he relayed the defeat to MacArthur
5: and King, he didn't understand what went wrong. How's the Japanese Navy get that close? The problem was that the radar sets of 1942 were not nearly as sophisticated, as powerful uh, as the later versions. No one fully appreciated the fact that with islands close at hand, it definitely degraded the effectiveness of the radar.
0: Despite the losses, Nimitz and King remained committed to the operation. And back on Guadalcanal, Scout Jacob Vuzza introduced himself to the Leathernecks. We
3: became very, very close friends. And warned
0: them about the island's
3: terrain. It's a tall grass, and in some places that I've gone through were six feet high. You could put thousands of men in there and nobody would ever see you. If you hit it the wrong way, if it hits your cheek or something, you'd get a pretty good welt. The
0: whole idea, if I understand correctly, is to take and make Guadalcanal into a unsinkable aircraft
5: carrier. The key to their survival is an airfield on Guadalcanal, which they quickly named Henderson Field after a marine aviator killed at Midway.
0: Engineers worked day and night to expand the airfield into a 4,000-foot runway. The enemy watched their every move.
3: They could observe Henderson Field. They knew where our lines were.
0: Warfare in Guadalcanal became an endless seesaw where Americans owned the days and the Japanese owned the nights. Magnesium flares drifted over the jungle canopy, creating a surreal setting for brutal hand-to-hand combat. The horrific battle for Bloody Ridge next on War Stories. The smoke hadn't cleared from the devastating losses at Savo Island when Admiral Robert Gormley allowed his flat tops to depart Guadalcanal. His effort to save three carriers left the Marines without air cover.
5: He creates a precedent that the Marines have never forgotten. And that precedent is that they should always bring their own airplanes with them because they can't rely on the Navy.
2: Were we abandoned? Yes, I'd have to say that uh, we all felt that way.
7: Well, I think they were right. They were, uh, in essence, abandoned during the time that the Tokyo Express came down without uh, any effective opposition. Admiral Gormley w- was someone who was very prudent and very reluctant to gamble. From
0: Fishtown, Pennsylvania, Charles Calhoun was a 29-year-old lieutenant aboard the destroyer USS Starrick. He saw Yamamoto's supply convoys in action.
7: Tokyo Express, that's the name that was given by uh, the, our Navy to the force which came down from the island chain to bombard Guadalcanal on almost a nightly basis.
5: While the Marines held on to Henderson Field, Jacob Vusa spied on the enemy. Vusa proved to be extraordinarily energetic and effective, conducting patrols and uh, providing intelligence information to uh, Clemens and through Clemens to the Marines.
0: This is Japanese Army Colonel Kiyuano Ichiki, on August 21st, he and a 1,000 of his Imperial soldiers planned a massive counteroffensive at the Tonaro River. Vuza stumbled upon the enemy and was caught by a Japanese patrol, and they found a tiny American flag in his pocket. They captured him,
6: and they tied him up to a tree which had an ant's nest. He was
3: left out in the sun all day. He told me that uh, they also bayoneted him and showed me his tongue. And uh, tried and left him for dead.
6: He managed to chew through his ropes and escape. He came down the road shouting, No shooting me. Me no Japan. Me no Japan. But Vuza refused medical attention until he reported to Clements. He gave me a long report of this crowd that had arrived at his village. He then gave me
0: a message for his wife he didn't think he was going to survive. But Jacob Fuza did survive, and General Vandegrift's Marines were ready for Ichiki.
5: Ichiki clearly reflected the attitude, which was that Japanese uh, moral superiority could win over virtually any level of uh, material superiority or numerical superiority by any Western power. About 800 of his 1,100 troops are killed in this one engagement in a period of about 12 hours.
0: And what's the Japanese commander do at that point? We believe Ichiki commits suicide, the Marines suffered the loss of 44 men and 71 wounded. But no one knew that this was just the beginning and that this kind of fighting would go on for the next six months. What's Yamamoto thinking at this point?
5: Well, the Japanese still continue to underestimate the number of Americans on Guadalcanal. Their thinking is so basic. We'll try a battalion, then we'll try a regiment, and we'll try a division. So the second effort is by a regimental unit, of the Kawaguchi Brigade. The one that was best conceived and best executed, clearly, was Kawaguchi's thrust in September. His uh, regiment is comprised primarily of uh, Kyushu coal miners who are known for their cantankerousness and uh, obstreperousness, and their commander perfectly reflects that.
0: This is the ridge that is variously called Bloody Ridge or Edson's Ridge.
5: Correct. Had the attack gone as he had planned, he would have uh, not only overrun the ridge, he would have overrun the First Marine Division command post.
0: Kawaguchi and his men had to get through the 1st Marine Raiders and the 1st Marine Parachute Battalion and their commander, Merritt Red Mike Edson. He had uh, slightly
2: uh, red hair and he grew a beard. The beard, of course,
0: turned red, was red. And uh, that's where the nickname started as Red Mike. John Sweeney was there commanding his own rifle company right alongside Red Mike on Bloody Ridge that September 13th. By some accounts, they were outnumbered 6 to 1. Henderson Field is located
2: in the area just behind where the artillery was established for this particular action, about a thousand yards from this spot. On this night, some 600 Marine Raiders and 300 paratroopers
5: defended this particular portion of the airfield. Kawaguchi launches three battalions at what he hopes is going to be the uh, open Marine uh, flank. Uh, One of the battalions gets lost in the jungle, the other two flounder around and uh, the combat is is pretty fleeting that night, although it's uh, bad enough to drive back the initial Marine line.
2: I can visualize going through it, I think one of the fears that I had was the darkness falling, knowing that something was going to happen right after dark.
5: It's incredibly steep. To go up that ridge, it's like your your face is almost facing right into the ground. You're bent over so far.
2: It was hell. Flares flying in the air and hanging over the bridge where the Japanese had fired in order to illuminate the target.
0: During the two-day battle, the hand-to-hand combat was as fierce as any man had ever seen.
2: The troops were, were antsy, particularly uh, when the uh, other two platoons back over in the jungle were being hit, and the screams and the hollering were there hand grenade.
5: The Japanese kept unhinging the defensive positions. Edson finally moved it back to a final little hilltop, uh, and there with a few hundred Marines, he held the final defensive line and probably had the whole campaign in balance at that point.
0: Edson and his Marines managed to hold their ground and saved Henderson Field. Kawaguchi himself survived, but the ridge was stained red with the blood of more than 500 of his men. 111 Marines lay dead next to them. Red Mike Edson was awarded the Medal of Honor, and John Sweeney received the Navy Cross.
2: The men that were killed, and we had a few in our own ranks killed that night, are the real heroes.
0: One of the great legends of the Marine Corps gets another Navy Cross on Guadalcanal, Chesty Puller.
5: The first major reinforcement that the Marines receive on Guadalcanal is when the 7th Marines landed on the island in September 1942. And among the men in that regiment, of course, is Chesty Puller.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Chesty Puller landed with 4,000 much-needed fresh Marines. The American forces now stood at 27,000 on Guadalcanal and Tulagi. But the Japanese were still there in force, some 30,000 strong, hidden in the jungles, courtesy of the Tokyo Express. At sea, the battles raged on. A day after Bloody Ridge, the carrier USS Wasp was sunk by a Japanese submarine. This time, over 2,000 sailors were saved, but it left the Hornet as the only operational
5: U.S. carrier in the Pacific. Gormley simply could not effectively lead American forces in the South Pacific.
0: Nimitz knew he had a leadership problem. On October 15th, he replaced Gormley as theater commander with Admiral William Bull Halsey.
5: Halsey took command and had an immediate and dramatic effect on everyone's morale. He had a meeting with Vandegrift, and Vandegrift in one simple sentence said, the Navy wasn't doing enough to support us. Now, this was like a spear in Halsey's heart, because if the one thing that he could not tolerate was the notion that the Navy was not holding up its end. He promised he would support the Marines, and that's exactly what he did.
0: Flying planes like this battered Grumman Wildcat, Marine Ace Joe Floss and the Cactus Air Force, showed the Japanese we also knew how to fight in the air. That's coming up on War Stories.
3: When he visited Guadalcanal, Admiral Nimitz decorated a few of the many heroes. This is Colonel Edson, who led a Marine Raider Battalion.
0: Morale improved dramatically when he came to the island that September of 42. Along with Admiral Nimitz, machine gunner Mitch
3: Page arrived as a fresh Marine. I felt that uh, I had probably had the best machine gun platoon the Marine Corps has ever had. And every one of our machine guns were 1917, 1918, A1, machine guns
0: 30 minutes after he got there a siren wailed
3: everybody was screaming air raid air raid i distinctly and vividly recall a plane coming low overhead and uh, everybody was shooting at him but he was an american plane and uh, we'd actually shot one of our own planes down
6: the Seventh marines had just arrived they spent all last night shooting each other Um, (laughs) and they didn't know anything about jungle
0: noises you see But the Marines learned from the likes of Martin Clemens and Jacob Vusa.
3: Page and his 33-man platoon went to live in the jungle. We had huge snakes, we had everything. He lived in swamps, Uh, these rainstorms. We sat in water for days, and and you had to somehow keep your weapons oiled and greased.
1: Those kids that we had in in our squadron ranged from 17 to
0: 22. Joe Foss went from farm boy to legendary Marine Ace. He flew with VMF one twenty one and was one of the oldest pilots in the Pacific. Duke
1: and myself were the two old goats in the deal. I was twenty seven, see. And every Ellen that I
0: was too old to fly fighters. War stories spoke with Joe Foss shortly before his death. Joe, how did they how did they come to call it the Cactus Air Force?
1: That was our code name. The Cactus Air Force there isn't a cactus within thousands of miles of there unless Somebody carried it in there.
0: You arrive on October 9th. When's your first dogfight?
1: On the 13th. They started shooting at you right away.
0: On that day, FOSS led 16 Wildcats to intercept 32 enemy planes. they just swarmed down on us. That's one thing
1: they had was at speed. Where we got our speed was to nose over and uh, full throttle. And the uh, Wildcat weighed 8,900 pounds and the uh, uh, zero weighed 5,900 four airplanes right off to my left and below me. And Being an old hunter, I thought that uh, I'd go for number one. If you get the leader, it sort of confuses the flock. And uh, in this case, I got number one. And that's when pow! the son of a gun hit the uh, oil cooler. And of course, it doesn't take long for that engine to freeze. I dropped the gear the last minute just before I hit the ground. What really went through my mind is why did I ever leave the farm?
0: VMF 121 holds the permanent record of 208 aerial victories. Joe Foss personally achieved 26 kills, tying Eddie Rickenbacker's World War I record. This earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor.
1: That's what I'm proud and honored to have.
0: Back in the jungle, Mitch Page and his platoon were busy fighting another
3: all-out offensive by Kawaguchi's men. 24 hours a day, something was going on, somewhere along that perimeter.
0: On a rainy night of October 25th, his platoon was deployed on a ridge overlooking the airfield. In front of them, 2,500 enemy soldiers.
3: But I only had 33 men. They had no other troops because others were tied up on the mouth of the Montanaco River. I says, we're here, we're going to hold this ground, our guns are going to work well
0: when the flares went off all hell broke loose
3: for a second it everything would light up and all of a sudden you see nothing but bayonets coming at you and uh, this most horrible screaming and this guy was screaming uh, blood for the Emperor and Richard East Stansbury, one of my men screamed out blood for Eleanor when the second wave hit every
0: Marine with page became a casualty he was now all alone. I was running from gun to gun. I was the only one on the guns. For four hours, Page held a position, but at the first light of dawn, he found himself in the sights of a Japanese machine gunner.
3: He fired these 30 rounds at me and missed me. 30 times he missed me and some of the bullets were out here, somewhere, in here, but I could feel the warmth. And I immediately fired one burst and he was gone. And I looked around and every, nobody was moving. And it was so quiet, I thought I was in a cemetery. And pretty soon, I hear this screaming and holler, and here comes my fixed bayonet, guys, down this hill. And I never had such a charge in my lifetime.
0: Mitch Page was awarded the Medal of Honor for his extraordinary courage. Stay tuned for more war stories. That's an order.
5: It became obvious that reinforcements had to be had. There simply were no no more Marines available.
0: Admiral Bull Halsey had kept his promise to General Vandegrift. The Marines were reinforced with 3,000 soldiers from the 164th Infantry. And at sea, the Navy was slowly turning the tide. Halsey's leadership precipitates a bunch of naval engagements.
5: This leads to a a battle of Santa Cruz Islands. Halsey decides to go out and get them. issues an order to strike, repeat strike.
0: During the battle, our one remaining carrier, the USS Hornet, was torpedoed. 118 perished as she joined the remains of 50 ships and crews in the depths of Iron Bottom Sound. The last of the big naval engagements happens right toward the end of the year in November.
5: One more big effort to run a uh, convoy to Guadalcanal with a, a major reinforcements.
4: The Coast watches are the ones that told us that these
0: Jack planes were coming
4: in the Guadalcanal, there were about 50 of them.
0: Seaman Frank Holmgren was a 19-year-old captain's orderly aboard the USS Juno. The cruiser was loaded with 725 men, including the five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, Iowa. I knew they were aboard, and one of them was in, in my division. George, Francis, Madison, Joseph, and Albert Sullivan left the family farm to join the Navy a day after Pearl Harbor. Kelly Sullivan Lockrin is the granddaughter of the youngest. Albert.
8: It was to avenge their friend's death, Bill Ball. He was on uh, the Arizona, so when Pearl Harbor was bombed, that was the first thing they thought about was Bill Ball. George was the one who said, we want to stick together, we want permission to be on the same ship. And when they weren't granted that permission, George was the one who went back and wrote to the Navy Department to get permission.
0: In the wee hours of Friday, November 13th, Holmgren and his high school buddy Charlie Hayes were below decks when a torpedo slammed into the number one fire room. It knocked me to my,
4: my feet. I had to make sure I had a life shagging on it, because I'm not a very good swimmer. <laughs> right then, I was scared
0: to death. Charles Calhoun was topside aboard the USS Sterrett looking at the Juno through binoculars.
7: We were probably 3,000 yards away from her. And I remarked to myself, what a beautiful ship she was. We were making 21 knots, and she was keeping up with us. I was really wondering how in the world she was doing it. Because I couldn't see any damage.
0: Then another enemy torpedo struck.
7: The ship blew up at my face.
4: I mean, big. I mean, it just blew up. The next thing I know, I'm in the
7: air. I saw whole five inch guns fly through the air. People who were on the bridge, bodies, fly up through the air.
4: And all of a sudden, I heard the ocean, roar of the ocean. And I said, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm gonna. And I went down with the ship. How far down I went, I don't know, but I was dead at
7: that time. I couldn't see anything. I especially looked for survivors in the water. I couldn't see them. I could see nothing. I couldn't even see a piece of flotsam.
4: When I was coming back up again, the life jacket was bringing me back up, and I could see it getting light. And uh, I finally broke, broke to the top, and it was fuel oil and got all over us. So it was good for the sharks, they didn't see either that way.
0: About 100 sailors survived the explosion, including 28-year-old George Sullivan. Sharks surrounded the flimsy rafts, and more men died.
4: They went out of their heads. In fact, they were diving off the ship to go down below because they thought supply, They thought the ship was down below and they could get supplies. Then the sharks came around. After the sharks got one of them, out, you know, they, they know what they were getting People were dying left and right. George died early because he was he was hurt real bad.
8: The story goes that George survived and that he was really distraught, that he was looking for his brothers and that he was going from raft to raft with, with toilet paper to wash the faces because everyone's faces were covered with oil and that he was looking for any of his brothers um, and that eventually he was attacked by sharks. But in my heart, I like to think that he went down with his brothers and he didn't suffer.
0: Five days after the naval battle of Guadalcanal, there were only 10 survivors. And on that fifth day, two PBY Catalinas finally arrived. We got in the airplane. The first
4: thing I said to the pilot was to find those cork nets out there because I knew my buddy Charlie Hayes was on it. I said, no, Charlie never made it, no.
8: President Roosevelt wrote him a letter and gave his condolences. Even Eleanor Roosevelt also wrote a letter to my great-grandmother telling her how brave and courageous she was.
0: The Sullivan legacy lives on. Two ships were commissioned with a family name.
8: The first ship was the Sullivan's 537, and my great-grandmother christened that ship in April, just two months after she found out the boys were were missing in action.
0: Kelly christened the second ship in 1995. The crew of the USS the Sullivan's and her commander, Dixon Smith, served in Operation Enduring Freedom. They were all awarded the Bronze Star for their role in fighting terrorism. There's more ahead on War Stories. Stay with me, Oliver North, on the Fox News Channel. Today, it's hard to imagine those months of desperate combat and the terrible conditions that prevailed on, over, and around Guadalcanal. For those who were there, it was indeed a tropical hell. The cost was horrific, but it was the turning point in our fight with the Japanese. Admiral Bull Halsey said, before Guadalcanal, the enemy advanced at his pleasure. After Guadalcanal, he retreated at ours. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North, good night.